Our passage this morning is Exodus 20. We'll look at verses 4 to 6. Also, while you're turning there, we will later turn to Colossians 1. And that's actually the longer passage, so if you want to get that one ready, the Exodus passage is a little shorter. Uh, it's up to you. And what we are doing this spring is going through the Ten Commandments. And we're asking the question, what is the role of the Ten Commandments, of the moral law, for Christians in the modern era? What does it look like? We've been talking about the freedom it brings. And that may sound strange, especially if that's the first time you've heard it. I want you to imagine uh, if you walked into your home and someone came over and said, hey, have you thought about doing this or that project? There's a lot of projects around your house, right? Um, for me, uh, there's a lot of projects. And I would probably say I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that over there. I don't care. But if all of a sudden the doorbell rang and it was one of those reality shows, we're here to fix your house, I would have a million problems. I would say, get rid of that carpet and let's do this. You know, I'd be excited to renovate the house. Okay, what's the point? When I have to do the work myself with my limited resources, I sort of ignore the problem. And that's what, how we, we normally approach the law. We don't really want to mess with things because we know intuitively we can't. But when Christ is the one who renovates our heart, all of a sudden there is a freedom. And we're excited that we can grow in holiness and that we can grow in Christ's likeness. So that's the goal of the Ten Commandments is seeing the freedom of the law. And last week we started with, the, obviously, the first commandment. And we mentioned how it really sheds light on the rest of the commandments. And we talked a lot about idolatry. And we will talk about that again this week a little bit. But the second commandment is not the same exactly as the first. It's, it's a different commandment. It flows from it. A lot of the light from the first commandment shines on it, but it is different. And so we will see that as we look at Exodus 20 this morning, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we read these ancient words and part of us we're very excited that you are jealous, that you love us, but there's also a fear. And I think a lot of that fear, Lord, is that we still doubt our union with you, our adoption. And I pray this morning, through your spirit, we would understand how this commandment plays out in our lives and how you give us the power to do so. In your name we pray. Amen. I have a lot of things in my past that I like hobbies. One of them is drawing. I don't do as much anymore. But my favorite drawing book, it's called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. If you have any interest in drawing, this is the book to get to at least start you on the path of improving your drawing. The author's name is Betty Edwards. Her passion was and is, I don't know if she's, I think she's probably still alive, was to take people who would say things like, I'm not an artist. How many of you would just, I don't draw? She wants to take you and make you into someone who draws fairly well. That's the goal of this book. And, what, and they start off with these self-portraits that look horrendous, right? And then they end with self-portraits that look pretty good. Um, and then all in between are these exercises. Now, if any of you have drawn at all or been in any classes, you've done these exercises, like when you draw the Picasso upside down or when you do the blind contour, these things. 
come right from her study and from her book. But here's the point. Here's what she's saying. Our problem in drawing is we symbolize everything. And we see kids do this all the time. Like, uh, tell a kid to draw something, and they don't look at any object. They just do it from memory. And a house is a square with a triangle on top. And a face is a circle with circles for the eyes and a triangle for the nose. And I, I've actually urged my children, hey, when you draw something, find an image and, and draw from that image. You know, look at that image. Don't just try to, there's some sort of pride, I think, in, no, 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 I did it all from my memory. And then the drawing doesn't look right. Um, and you have to be real cheesy and say, no, it looks really good. Well, what's the point other than I like drawing? This is what we do with things in general, but especially with God. We are prone to take what we know of God and run it through the grid of our brain and our flesh and turn him into a symbol and make him boring and make him tame. And yet the God of the Bible will not be tamed. And the God of the Bible is not boring. And so what we're going to see this morning, my prayer is, that we'll see that the gospel of Christ frees us to actually look at God as he is and as he displays himself in Scripture. And that would be the God we worship and not the God of our own imagination. Um, So we're just going to plug through the passage like that. I may not even give you an outline. The first thing we're going to look at is the fact that this, this commandment is subtly different from the first. The first commandment said, don't make other God. Don't worship other gods beside me. In other words, I'm to be the only God you worship. This commandment is similar, but it's slightly different. This commandment is saying, don't worship me in ways that I have not prescribed. That's a distinction. Now, there is overlap, but that is a distinction. In fact, some groups like uh, the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, would say they're really the same commandment, And then they break up the tenth into two commandments. Uh, Historically, um, Reformed churches have said this is a separate commandment. And the reason is, like I just said, that it's really giving us a distinction. That God is telling us how we should worship him. And last week we talked about the golden calf from Exodus 32. And I was, um, we talked about how the Israelites were so quick to make an idol, right? Remember the story? God has brought Israel out of Egypt. They're at Sinai. He's revealed himself in Exodus 19. At least he's revealed uh, that he's present. You couldn't see him. But you did see smoke billowing down and the trembling of the mountain. And Moses went up. And Israel, standing there, they were in awe. They were shaken. But then they got bored or they got distrusting or whatever adjective you want. And they said, let's make a calf out of gold and worship that. So they got Aaron to help them in this endeavor. But if you study that passage a little bit closer, there's some strange things. For example, in verse 3, it says, or in verse 4, where am I? There it is, in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it wasn't that they thought they were just making this separate god completely, but many commentators would say they were actually in their minds worshiping Yahweh by way of this calf. Which just sounds crazy, doesn't it? And you may say, well, I don't see that in what you just read. But listen to the very next line. Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. In the Hebrew for Lord, there is Yahweh. So Aaron is saying uh, in that passage, and what they seem to be saying, is we're going to have this golden calf that we've structured, and we're going to use this calf to worship the Lord, Yahweh. That seems very strange. That seems very distant from anything that we would do. 
And yet the truth is, and what I hope to convince you of, is we do this all the time. J.I. Packer, last week, I gave him the shout-out for the whole, uh, um, rediscovering holiness. His magnum opus would be Knowing God. If you've not read that book, I know the other one's already in the mail. You're waiting anxiously for that from Amazon. Order Knowing God. But in, the pa- in one of his chapters, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, he deals with this very commandment. And his point is that you, we should not have things, objects, that help us formulate what God looks like. And he spends a lot of time on that. And in fact, the edition I have was written maybe 10 or 15 years after the first edition, and he says, I've received letters of people urging me to reconsider this, this position. But he's, he holds his ground that you should not worship, he would say, with images of Jesus. And I even had a professor in seminary who didn't want to go see the Passion of the Christ because he was afraid that he would have the image of that actor as Jesus in his mind. Now, I will tell you, that's not exactly where I'm going to go this morning. And I'm not even going to hit the the same ideas that Packer hits, other than to say this. It's very serious that we don't take God and turn him into achievable symbols, measurable symbols that are comfortable for us. Why do we do that? I'll talk about how we do it in a little bit, but why do we do that? We do that because we are, I think, very much afraid of God. Right? And so I remember hearing a lecture or speak about leprechauns. How many of you like leprechauns? Just the idea of leprechauns. Any of you? When you were a kid, maybe? At Northern Hills in Edmond, we had, I don't, on, on St. Patrick's Day, like the next day, you'd come and there'd be like painted footprints that some teacher did. I'm not ruining this for any children. It's not on you. I thought it was. Um, but this lecturer was saying, it's funny because those little, you know, fairies and leprechauns, were terrifying initially. Like, back in Ireland, when these were actually made up in the folklore, these were terrifying entities that they made over time look fuzzy and fun to be around because it was easier. And that's what I think we do with God. And one of the ways we do that with God is we make this kind of a statement either outwardly or inwardly. I can't worship a God who would do X. Have any of you ever said or thought that? I can't believe in a God who might do Y. That blank. Now, you hear that, or you hear other people say that. And it sounds very noble, especially if that fill-in-the-blank is a true statement, right? I can't worship a God who would have me kill my neighbor. Okay, I agree that God shouldn't have you kill your neighbor, but what you're saying, if you make a comment like that, is I'm the one who chooses for myself what God is. And all we're doing when we do that is making God in our own image. And that's probably one of the most prevalent things we do today is we turn God into our own image through making statements like that theologically. And we need to come back to Scripture and allow God to be God. And that means dying to my own fear that maybe His ways are bad for me, His ways are bad for me. And trusting that the God of the Bible is loving and real and true and, and on a, just a logical level, even if you came to some conclusion that the real God of the universe wasn't those things, then you would have to reconsider what you're thinking in general anyway. Because it would be completely crazy to say, I know more than the God of the universe. So I won't worship a God who believes that, so I'm just going to walk away from that God and worship my own ideas. So now I'm saying that I'm God. Either way you go, you're coming back to the point that your brain is now the arbiter of truth for all people on some level. 
And so we have to have humility and come back to Scripture and pray that the Lord would reveal himself through Scripture and not just allow ourselves to guide what we think God is and worship him the ways we want. Now, how does this play out more practically in our lives? What is, that's a theological distinction maybe, but what about practically daily in the moment? One, uh, one tweeter says this, and I don't want to ever tell who tweets it because you never know who's really behind it, but I like what they said. The things you daydream about in your spare time are ultimately the things you serve. If I have, capital T-H-A-T, if I have that, my life will have meaning. I'll have value. I'll, I'll have significance. I'll be secure. Then whatever that is just became the object of your worship. Now, we're all guilty of this. All of us medicate ourselves on thoughts that we're missing something, and if we just had something else, that thing. Now, it may change from moment to moment, day to day. It could be lunch until lunchtime, and then it's dinner. I don't know. But often there's that thing we need that's going to set us free. And that's an example of, of idolatry. That's an example of taking for yourself a God that isn't the God of the Bible and saying, I need security from that God. And I think that, that really looks a lot more like the first commandment, and it is. But where I think it gels with the second commandment is, oftentimes we say that what we want is what God wants. Right? And that's, that's good, and that sounds right, but it's actually better to say, I want what God wants. Do you see the difference? Does that make sense? That to say, I want whatever it is. And it's a good thing, and everybody would hear me and go, that's a great thing, you want that, a career a relationship, whatever it is. And then you say, I know God wants me to have it too. That, that might not be the order to go in is all I'm saying. Let's go back to the order of God. I want what you want. We partner together. Your spirit dwells in me, and I want what you want. So will you please orient me to longing for what you're opening up for me? That's the order we want to be in. So where, is the, uh, where, do, where do we find how to get back into that kind of thinking in this passage? is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. There's not a lot of words in the Ten Commandments, and so when you have these descriptions, you have to really pay attention to them. And God explains what it is that makes him the the worthy to be the object of your worship. He says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Everybody in this room hears that word and goes, wow, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. Jealous? I wish I could just go around and go, what do you think that means? Anyone want to start? When I first read that, and when I read that in general, I think I'm predisposed, I don't know if it's a cultural predisposition, to go, jealousy's bad, right? Jealousy's a bad thing. We all think of the junior high guy that was so abusive to his girl, he can't talk to any other boys at school, we're dating. That's jealousy, it's bad. And it just plays all through life, right? And so we never quite forget that thinking. And so we hear God's jealous, and we think, why? Relax, right? But how many of you, when you think about a future mate or your current mate, want someone who's not jealous? I want a wife who would let me have other girls. Does anyone think that way? I want someone that if I went out and had other girlfriends, they wouldn't mind at all. Oh, that's fine with me. No, I want my wife. She's got a scary look on her face. It's an illustration. We want 
our, our significant others. We want the, the deepest relationships in our lives to be fixated on us. Don't you want God to be fixated on you? Friday night, we went to the zone for, what do we call that, open gym or open gym? The zone's a, like a gymnastics place here in Stillwater. And we took our two little girls, and then Emery joined us, and they got to run around, and, and I believe in God's providence more than ever because there's no death every time this happens. These kids are just flinging and running. There is something far beyond what we can see going on here, protecting these children. But one of the things that started to happen as Bonnie got tireder and tireder was she really wanted us to watch her. It went from just being kind of like occasional to like watch every step I'm taking. And Emma and I would be talking to some friends, and then she would be on the ground crying. She's not in here, right? So I can. Um, so I went out from the glass and I stood there and watched Bonnie. And of course, she just beamed. Of course, she wanted her mom to watch even more than me. But she beamed when we would watch her. And I think that's what we want from God. I mean, we want our parents to watch us. You, you know, the, the, you don't want to be the parent on your cell phone when your kid looks up and they're playing a sport, right? It's like, hit the ball and look back and look. You know? Nah. But what was amazing is I walked out to watch Bonnie, and out came this other girl I've never seen before, looking at me, showing me some trick, flipping over, I thought breaking her wrist. And then she's like, and I was like, hey, good, good job. That, and all of a sudden, it's like the feeding the goats at like a petting zoo. It was like, <laughs> kids are coming from everywhere, like, watch this, watch that. And so people want to be watched. People want to be fixated on. Uh, and a healthy, I think it's healthy. Do you want your God to be fixated on you? Do you want your God to be jealous? I do. I mean, at first I don't until I think about it. I don't want a God that if I could walk into the throne room of heaven, he might go, "Uh, who are you? You Why are you here? Oh, that's right, Brian, right? I want him to love me. I want him to care for me. That's what he says he does. Is that your passion? Is that your desire? So do you see the grace in this passage? God is jealous. And he says he envisits iniquity on, of, um, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I, I can't unpack that and spend a ton of time. That's very scary. But let me also say what it seems when you, it's talking about the fact, there's actually grace in that passage. Because when we choose to hate God, we are inviting the pollution of sin into our lives. And it will affect our family. What I find amazing is that there comes a point when he still reaches out to the third or fourth generation who probably doesn't even care about him at all and still reveals himself to them as well. But more importantly, he's jealous and he doesn't want us to wander away. And when we do, it hurts us. Right? We are only hurting ourselves. And that's the point of this whole series is as we wander away from God and worshiping of God, we become the recipient of of really a lot of trouble and a lot of difficulty because the freedom we have in Christ is removed. So, God is jealous. What do we do with that jealousy? Um, how um, How does it play out in the Scripture? If you have the Colossians passage, go ahead and turn to it. And just as a, before we read it, I just want to say that Jesus is also jealous, right? Jesus has his children. When you read about Jesus all through the New Testament, you'll find places where it's he knows his sheep. His sheep know his voice in the book of John, right? Jesus came to earth to pursue his own, right? He was so jealous for our love that as we have drifted away, 
He has come after us. And he said, you are mine. And it goes so far, well, let's just look at the passage here. In chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's your image. You're looking for what God looks like. It's Jesus. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. If you are tempted right now to be thinking, you're just kind of saying a lot of stuff, go back and look. Paul is, is going out of his way to say, Jesus owns everything. Jesus is the head of everything. For in Him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Jesus is God. There it is, right? Verse 20, And through Him, listen to the word, to reconcile Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by forcing you to follow Him and do everything He says. Right? No. Making peace by the blood of his cross. He is so jealous that what he does and what he did is he came and lived a perfect life that he might die the perfect death that his blood would actually be our atonement. So when Moses comes off the mountain at Sinai, he brings a lot of laws, ceremonial laws, that are critical, but they're fulfilled in Jesus. You are clean if you know Christ. And so like I said in the very beginning, when we have Christ, when we worship Him, when He's the object of our affection, the other things really will take care of themselves. It really will become like that opening thought of the person coming in and saying, I'm here to help, what should we fix? When Jesus is the object of our affection, we don't feel the burden of the law anymore. Right? We want to worship Him. So, do you believe in that? Is that your hope? Is that where you find your identity is in Jesus? And the answer is, I hope, a resounding yes if you're a Christian. But I think you'll also recognize as a believer that we're prone to wander, that we find ourselves drifting, that we do allow idols to come in and take over. And so I would ask again that question, what is the that of your daydream? If I could catch you in the middle of the day, which would be kind of frightening, hey, what are you daydreaming about you know, as you're typing away on your computer? What is that longing you have? Is Jesus enough? What would that look like? So um, a couple of application points. And, and I hope I don't add, I thought about and debated this. I hope I don't add confusion, but I want to try to, if, let me use a legal, I'm going to start with legalism. A person who struggles with legalism takes a law, which is okay by itself, and makes it God. So Jesus is no longer in the picture, right? The cornerstone was rejected, and now these laws have become the end point. And what happens when you find a person that struggles with legalism is they have the appearance of having it all together, but they've really dumbed the law down to a few achievable things that they can do, the things that they're good at. And other people that don't do those things are on the outside. What have they done? They've replaced 
Jesus with themselves, right? Rarely will a legalist choose a law they can't do, right? Now, what about the other extreme, antinomianism? The antinomian, that's a big word. That's someone who says there is no law. Inside the church, Christians, antinomianism looks something like this. I have Jesus, so basically I'm not going to kill anybody, right? I'll go ahead and try to pay my taxes. I'll come to church when I can. Other than that, Jesus is everything, and I'm good to go on anything I want to do. That's really a modern version of self-esteem. It's the Christian version of self-esteem. It's saying, I can't ever handle the fact that I might be a sinner. I don't ever want to know that maybe I've done wrong. I don't want any sense of that, so I just placate all those thoughts with Jesus. But it's not the true Jesus of the Bible. It's this sort of made-up image of self-esteem. Okay, those are two extremes that maybe we'll talk about as we go on um, in some future series. But what about worry? Anyone, no, I mean, maybe two of you struggle with this. Worry is always replacing God with yourself. So now I've got to prove that. Philippians 4, the classic scripture, right? Do not be anxious in anything, but in everything through prayer and petition. Present your request to God and the peace of God, which does what? It guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. What that's saying, what Paul says in Philippians 4 is, I have a guard over my heart and my mind, Jesus. But when I worry, I've replaced him with myself. And what our, what, the way we worry, we're like a really bad weather model that doesn't really know how to read the information well. And so we're always saying, alert, alert, there's going to be a disaster. And, and that's what we do. We put that part of ourselves at the guardianship, and Jesus we set away. And so we have fear and we have worry. You know, 98%, if we were weather people, we'd be fired maybe. 98% of our predictions don't come true. Do weathermen have better prediction uh, numbers than that, Melissa? They get, it, they get it right more of the time. Look, I've made her embarrassed. But yet all of our fears, none of them come true. But yet we still do it. We worry. We medicate ourselves on that worry. What about anger? How is that breaking the second commandment, anger? Well, I've replaced Jesus with control. If you are angry, or any time you lose your temper, you're simply not getting what you wanted. We've replaced the wallowing on the ground at age two, that's what two-year-olds do, with just outbursts and frustration, right? Or inward anger. Our way is not happening, and so I can't believe in a God who wouldn't do it this way for the moment, right? And so we've replaced God, and we've become angry. The point of all those three uh, or four examples is to say we all struggle mightily with not having Jesus at the center. And my prayer is that we would begin to ask the Lord to come into every part of our life, that there would not be any aspect. I'm going to go back to that example of the microphone in the middle of the day. You're in a daydream, and there I am with a microphone or somebody. Maybe it's Jay Leno. And the question is, what are you, why are you doing what you're doing right now? The ideal answer is for the glory of God, for Jesus. Now, I understand that you don't have that thought all the time, but you should. I mean, that's going to free you. If everything I did, I actually did because of the love of Christ, his love to me and the love that that unleashed in me. A, I could say no to a lot more junk I say yes to, and B, I would do it for, the, for him and not for my own identity, my own needs. Does that make sense? 
Okay. If it doesn't, this prayer might help. I have been told by my wife in a loving way that I use too many quotes. So I've only, I don't think I've used any quotes this morning. So I'm going to, I've banked it all for this last little bit, one minute quote. It is from the Valley of Vision. I recommend you read through these prayers if you want to buy a copy. Um, Page 34 and 35. Oh God, thou hast taught me that Christ has all fullness and so all plenitude of the Spirit. That all fullness I lack in myself is in Him. For His people, not for Himself alone. He having perfect knowledge, grace, righteousness to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness. That it is my duty out of a sense of emptiness to go to Christ, possess, enjoy His fullness as mine. As if I had it in myself because it is for me in Him. That when I do this, I am full of the Spirit. As a fish that has got from the shore to the sea and has all fullness of waters to move in. For when faith fills me, then I am full. That this is the way to be filled with the Spirit. Like Stephen, first faith, then fullness. For this way makes me most empty, and so most fit for the Spirit to fill. Thou, God, has taught me that finding of this treasure of all grace in the field of Christ begets strength, joy, glory, and renders all graces alive. Help me, Lord, to delight more in what I receive from Christ, more in that fullness which is in Him, the fountain of all His glory. What a prayer. Is that your prayer? If it's not, I recommend repenting. I urge you. Guys, that's not always my prayer. Maybe very rarely, but it needs to be my prayer. Fundamentally, and at the core. Jesus, I want you. And everything that else that I have would be from you and to you. Is that your prayer this morning? If you're not a Christian, or you I think I am, but that doesn't sound right, I would love to have a conversation with you privately. Coffee, have some longer conversations. Discuss, is this true? But this is where life is found. Not in you getting what you want and using Jesus, but you getting Jesus. That's where life is found. Let us pray. Jesus, you did jealously pursue us, but out of pure love, a love we can't imagine. And Lord, you purchased us with your blood. And we give you praise. Forgive me and forgive us for trivializing what you've done for us. Forgive us for symbolizing you, for even coming into worship as a routine, forgetting that we might be meeting the transcendent God in a way we've never seen you before. Lord, even as we move over to this meal, the Lord's Supper, where we come and we take and eat and drink, Lord, and the bread and the wine that represent your body and your blood, please help it not be a symbol. Let your spirit open our eyes to see freshly the way you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.